Hey, thanks so much for joining us on uh, Biltmore Church Online. Hope you've had a great morning of worship already. And what you saw from the bumper is we're starting a brand new teaching series out of the book of Philippians called The Gospel Changes Everything. And it really does, all right? A lot of people, this is their favorite Bible book, not just because it has a couple of kind of coffee cup verses that people know, uh, but also because it is saturated with the gospel as well as a super, super mature church and a pastor who is showing great affection toward them. But if you hadn't studied the book of the Bible before, man, go ahead and take your Bible out. You'll find it about halfway through the New Testament, uh, the book of Philippians. And uh, we're gonna start in chapter one in just a few minutes. But let me, let me try to set the hook this way. One of my top three favorite movies of all time, bar none, maybe even top two, is a movie called I Am Legend. Now, the timing of this might be questionable, but if you haven't seen it, um, I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler alert, but I Am Legend is a movie with Will Smith. It is set in New York City, and it is about a vaccine that has been given to cure cancer that basically wipes out uh, everybody. All right, so New York City is, there's nobody there except Will Smith and his German Shepherd. So everybody has either had to get out or they've been killed by this vaccine that has changed people into these kind of a mixture between a zombie and a vampire, all right? And they went and ate everybody. So the way the story goes, it's Will Smith and his German shepherd dog named Samantha or Sam, and they're just going about, and he's the doctor trying to figure out, how do I cure this thing? How do I cure this thing? But the backdrop is the deterioration of Will Smith as there is nobody there. His, the isolation is changing him as a man. And sort of the, the, the pinnacle of how this isolation is changing him is, again, spoiler alert, is when his German shepherd, one of the saddest scenes in all of movie history, the, the, the German shepherd dies. You can see it later and see how. But when the German shepherd dies, takes away his one companion, it just unravels for him. And again, probably the pinnacle of that is the next day he goes into a store. It's actually kind of like a blockbuster. If you don't know what blockbuster is, just Google it. But he goes into this blockbuster type store to get a DVD and there are mannequins set up. Mannequins are set up. And he had promised Samantha that he would introduce himself to a mannequin. And so he goes up to this mannequin and he says, I promised my friend I would say hello to you. Hello. And then with tears running down his face, he says, please say hello to me. Please say hello to me. And what you saw was a person who is deteriorating before our eyes because there is no one else. And what always comes to mind when I see that movie is, listen, part of the way that God made us, part of the Imago Dei, the image of God in which God made you, has us long for relationships. The Christian faith is very personal. It is personal. Your grandmama can't get saved for you. It's something individually when you repent and embrace Jesus by faith. So don't misunderstand me. It is a very, very personal faith, but it is not private. Your Christian faith is not private. We are individually saved, but we are not the only individuals who are saved. And the greenhouse in which God has actually established for your flourishing, for your health, for your growth, is called in the Bible, it's called the local church. Now I understand uh, many of you 
You're, you cannot wait until church gets back together physically again. You're like, man, I cannot wait, I cannot wait. And then on the other extreme, you've got some folks, I'm sure you're watching, maybe somebody talks you into watching the webcast and your history at the church is either one filled with misunderstanding, you're like, I don't understand why they get so excited, I don't understand why they build these buildings, or even worse, maybe your history of the church is one of deep, deep wounding, deep, deep hurt. And so wherever you are, glad that you're here. And what we're gonna see in this church, the church at Philippi, is probably the healthiest church in the Bible. It's the one that had a bunch, it's not perfect, but it is a bunch of very mature believers. One way to see that is every other letter that the guy that wrote this, guy called the Apostle Paul, every other letter that he writes is filled with stop this or do this or rebuking them for this or all this corrective language. In this one, it's not corrective, it's very endearing. Now he certainly has some things he kind of guides them in and gives them some instruction as we go along, you'll see that. But basically what it is, it's a mature church and it shows us how the gospel has changed everything. So here's what I'm gonna start off with today is, uh, how do I enjoy my church? How do I enjoy my church? Now my context is gonna be Biltmore Church in Western North Carolina. That's my context, that'll be some of my examples. But I know uh, many of you are tuning in from all different places, so you take this and you apply it to where your context is, all right? So here's what we're gonna do. It's gonna take about, we're only gonna go through six verses today but it's gonna take four verses to set the context up. And then how do I enjoy my church? How do I enjoy it? All right. How do I go, man, I love going to church. How do I get to that point? We're gonna to get to that in verse five and six. All right, so here's verse one, you'll see it on your screen. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, that's the city, with the overseers and the deacons. All right, so quick little deal about Paul's MO. Paul's MO, his MO was to go into typically a metropolitan city, establish a group of believers, usually winning them to Christ either personally or publicly, and then he would train up leaders, establish leaders, ground them in the gospel, and then he would go to plant another church in another metropolitan city. And the way would he, that he would shepherd that church, all right, besides setting up pastors, the way he would shepherd them is through correspondence, which is a lot of times was Q&A. They would write him a letter and say, what about this? Or what about this doctrine? And they would answer them back. That's how we got some of the uh, letters in your Bible that are called the epistles. And so it's been about a decade since he has established the Philippian church. He's gone and done some other things. They've corresponded with him and he is writing them this letter back. And so verse two says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's where it starts getting very personal. Verse three says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I mean, this is a guy that looks back on his time with this church with the fondest of memories. He's saying, when I get down and I pray for you, a smile comes on my face as I remember you. Now you're like, who is you? Now, in order to do this, you heard earlier in the worship service, you heard a few verses that were read from Acts 16. Acts 16 is actually the place where you see the narrative where the Philippian church was established. And all I'm gonna do is I wanna show you the three founding members real quick, and then we're gonna get to our points, but it's important for you to get the context. When you look at Acts 16, you see the first person that is converted there, she is a, she's a, she's a lady named Lydia. So let me give you a description to make a point. Lydia is likely ethnically Asian. She has a house in Philippi, 
economically, she is very wealthy. She's in the fashion industry. She'd be kind of like a fashionista. She's a savvy businesswoman. She is religious. Paul actually finds her at a prayer meeting. Now, she's not a Christ follower yet, but she's also kind of rejected paganism. And when she's rejected paganism, she's kind of looking at Judaism and looking at a monotheistic God, but she's not a Christ follower yet. Paul comes along, wins her to faith in Christ. She becomes a believer. She's baptized. Her whole family gets saved and baptized. And then she invites Paul, hey, stay in my home, which for a bivocational church planner was probably a pretty sweet crib for him to stay in. But that's Lydia. That's the first one. Second person, you go down a little bit in Acts 16. Second person is completely opposite. It's a slave girl. She's probably ethnically Greek, economically poor, very exploited, more than likely a runaway who had to put food on the table and then got enslaved and she's been taken advantage of. She's following Paul and the other missionaries and she's like screaming at the top of her lungs, all this stuff, and then supernaturally she is converted. Third person, totally opposite from this person. It's a prison guard. Because of what Paul and Silas did and that conversion of that slave girl, the slave girl's owners were pretty ticked off because all of a sudden their money train was gone. And so they have Paul and Silas thrown in jail. Paul and Silas are singing as they're being tortured, but guess who is the one watching over them? But a guy named the Philippian jailer. Now those guys were usually ex-military people who then had a retirement, a great retirement gig by watching the prisoners. And so this ex-military blue-collar Joe Screwdriver sees them having joy in the midst of their difficulty. He ends up saying, what must I do to be saved? He's saved, his family's saved. They're all baptized. All this to say this. You've got a wealthy fashion designer, economically wealthy. You've got a slave girl who has got some deep wounds and deep scars, struggles, I'm sure, with forgiveness. And then you've got a rough, tough, ex-military prison guard all together. They have nothing in common, nothing in common except the gospel. It's all they have in common. So with that intro, with that context, let me give you two more verses and take two principles. All right. Look at verse five. Verse five says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So you want to enjoy your church. Like, man, I wish I liked my church more. All right, I'm over here in Missouri or I'm over here in Mississippi or I'm up here in Minnesota or wherever I am and I just don't really get into my church. I just don't like my church. You wanna enjoy your church more. First thing you need to be able to do is see yourself, see yourself as a partner. Now, again, this is not something we're just dreaming up. What we do here at our church is we just, we just teach the Bible. So in this case, we're just going through these verses and we're gonna pull out a couple of things. There's always more in a verse than you and I can ever do in 30 or 40 minutes. But as you look at verse five, underline this word, if you underline it or highlight it in your app or whatever you're gonna do, it's the word partnership, partnership. That's what my translation says. It actually can mean, sometimes it's translated fellowship, sometimes sharing, sometimes communion, all right? It's the Greek word koinonia, which is the idea of we have something in common. So let me give you a little quick definition. We hear fellowship, a lot of times we mistakenly think that's like donuts and punch in the church parlor, and that's not what fellowship is. That's not what partnership is. Definition would be, it's a relationship between individuals that involves participation in a common interest. So, Biltmore Church, here's where we are. We're uh, typically, we are six campuses. 
We've got anywhere between 11 and 13 services each week, depending on the time of year. And what you and I have to understand and what we already have seen the fruit of is what binds us together is not, it's not common, it's not common education. All right. We got everybody from PhD to GED. It's not, it's not a common race. We've got all, we've got, I don't know how many different races we have that make up Biltmore Church. It's not common income. All right. It's not, we've got people with uh, maybe two numbers in their bank account. We've got people with, uh, you know, eight or nine numbers in their bank account. So it's not that. It's not common restaurants. It's not common politics. We've got Republicans. We've got Democrats. We've got independents. That's not what it is. The common thread at this church, the common thread at Philippi is right there in the verse. It says, your partnership in the gospel. It's the fact that we were saved by the grace of God, filled with the spirit of God, and then sent out on mission for the glory of God, all right? That's for everybody. That means the gospel is for everybody. Rich, poor, black, white, young, old, conservative, liberal, religious, irreligious, good families, broken families. We've got one problem, that's sin. We've got one savior and that is Jesus. That's what's common. And what you and I have got to be reminded of over and over again about this partnership and what I love about our church is the fact that you understand that, that initially the church was, it was not a building, it was a movement. That's really what it was. It was a movement where the Spirit of God used the people of God to get the gospel out for God's glory. And it typically wasn't the preachers that got it out. Now, you saw some occasional ones where Peter would stand up and tons of people would get saved. But if you read the book of Acts carefully, what you see is that as the gospel spreads, it's a bunch of people, many of whom we do not even have their names. And so uh, here's what I was thinking about this week uh, quite a bit as I have looked at Philippians and this great relationship that Paul had with his church. In all honesty, and I've told you this before, so it's not just for the sermon. There are so many things that, at, uh, that I'm grateful for uh, at Biltmore Church. Our 11 years together and hopefully many, many more have been just remarkable. And, and I'm so grateful for you for, and I could list 20 things, all right? I could talk about, so grateful that you distinctly understand that you hold the message tightly and you hold the methods loosely, all right? That's, some of you are like, yeah, what, what else is there? That's oftentimes the opposite in church life, but the fact that you hold the message tightly, you know, it's the gospel, it's, it's the book. We're not varying from that. When it comes to methods, when it comes to programming, it's like, hey, if it's not working, let's try something else, all right? I don't know if you know how rare that is, but thank you for that. Deeply grateful. It's, it is so much fun to uh, lead in that regard. Uh, I am grateful for the way that you uh, love the Bible, all right? The fact that, uh, you know, I could stand up and preach kind of a pretty lame sermon and you're still leaning in, you're still taking notes, you're still writing in your journal, you're still trying to practice it. Uh, I am grateful for your enthusiasm in corporate worship. I can't wait to get together, okay? Let me just, can't wait to get together. I mean, but when we were, the, the worship culture that God has put at our church is something I'm deeply, deeply grateful for. I'm deeply grateful for the way you're generous with your time, your talents, your treasures, the thousands of volunteers uh, every single weekend. Very, very grateful for that. But I would say what I'm most grateful for among all those things is that you understand that you and I, we are partners together in the gospel. That we're partners, all right? All right? In the Old Testament, you had like the priests and the people and there was this huge gap. But you understand that, you know what, if you're in Christ, we're all priests, all right? We're all in partnership together for, for the gospel. 
And so here's, uh, you know, what we've seen over the last few years, the last number of years, I guess, is, hey, you know, it's always fun to have growth and growth and growth, but what's most fun is what I would just call conversion growth, conversion growth. And over the last, I want to say five to six years, every year, sometimes a little above, sometimes a little below, but there are annually over 600, there's way over this that are saved, but there's over 600 people every year that actually testify about what Jesus has done in their life through baptism. That's 600 people every year, and they're of all walks of life. And so what I did is I uh, was thinking about these three that started the Philippian church, and then so I asked the, the men and women that have some, uh, uh, some oversight, I said, hey, give me uh, just a brief sentence about some of the ones that have come to faith in Christ. And I don't know how far I went back, but basically, you know, one sentence. And as I read through, I was like the diversity of background and, and notice all but just a handful. Some of them were like, yeah, you know, I watched the crusade or Pastor Bruce preached a message that got saved right there. But the vast majority, if I read them all, they're, they're all connected to the fact that you understand, you know what, uh, we're in this together. So here, here's just some real quick. Uh, 41-year-old guy, lifelong skeptic, is one to faith through the pursuit of his friends at Biltmore Church. Uh, there was a doctor who had a very religious background but was struck uh, by the prospect that he could actually know Jesus personally and prayed to receive Christ at one of the campuses. A college basketball player, 22 years old, found out that basketball was a very harsh idol. He decides to make Jesus his Lord. A middle school boy, he also grew up religious, uh, found out what the gospel was, not his goodness, but Jesus's goodness that would save him. He comes to faith in Christ. A high school girl, she battled depression. She battled self-harm. She found safety and hope in the form of the student ministry, came to faith in Christ. A nine-year-old girl whose dad is in prison, believed that God could be her heavenly father, repented and embraced Christ by faith. 63-year-old man whose wife prayed for him, prayed for him, prayed for him, prayed for him. He finally comes to faith in Christ. A single, 37-year-old single. He'd been in and out of drug rehab facilities over and over and over again. He comes to Vertical, the Vertical service one night. He prays to receive Christ. His life has been radically changed. A young seven-year-old prays to receive Christ with his parents while watching the online service just a few weeks ago. A financial advisor who suffered a heart attack, got healed, later gave his life to Christ, recently got baptized through the spontaneous baptism where we saw 198 people get baptized in one morning right before this whole pandemic started. Another person, some of you all, you went to do a welcome to the neighborhood visit and then him and his daughter, they came to faith in Christ at that visit. A medical doctor invited by a colleague, somebody here in the church to participate in a medical mission trip, asked if the same message of sin, grace, and restoration that they were sharing overseas would apply to him. They then explained the gospel to the, to the doctor and he prays to receive Christ while on a medical mission trip. 21-year-old college student who grew up in church gave everything to Jesus sitting over there at Rocky's Hot Chicken Shaq, bless God. 66-year-old retired woman comes to faith through Christ watching online. 24-year-old construction worker who's always been skeptical of the church, skeptical of what the church was representing. Some people befriended him, brought him to church, led him to Christ outside of church. Hendersonville campus student comes to faith in Christ last year, gets baptized, and then his mother, she also decides to come to faith in Christ and be baptized this year after watching his example. A student gets saved at one of the campuses. His dad's so excited about the fact that he's following through with believer's baptism. He comes to faith in Christ that morning, jumps in the baptistry with his jeans on. 
Western Carolina University student hits rock bottom through all the parting scene, then comes to faith in Christ through the ministry out there. Young man surrenders his life to Christ through the premarital counseling as he prepares to get married. Hall of Fame wrestler comes from a religious family, finally understands the grace of God found in the gospel. Few more, prison guard prison guard who's sitting in the back of the room when we go and do the prison services on Friday night for the prisoners finds out, you know what? He's still a prisoner in his own sin. He repents and comes to faith in Christ in the back of the room while he's watching the other prisoners. A volunteer, her mother gave her life to Christ a few weeks ago during church online in Florida. Another person, she was a victim of sexual abuse. She found salvation, healing, and purpose in Christ as somebody here invited her to church. 11-year-old girl comes to know Christ in the kids' worship. And then lastly, and this is, I could have gone on and on. There was pages of these. College baseball player, now a coach, thought it was all about being good, thought it was all about being perfect, understood it was not his, his goodness, but Jesus' goodness, not his perfection, but Jesus' perfection. He comes to faith in Christ, is now walking with the Lord and led his family to the Lord as well. All that being said, all this quarantine stuff that's going on, thank you for continuing to declare and to demonstrate the gospel. Man, you're doing a great job in that. You're declaring it. Obviously, we got people lined up once we come back together to be baptized. I don't know how many are already lined up, but also you're demonstrating. You're demonstrating it in a ton of different ways from stuff we do congregationally, from your generosity with the food drive to the blood drive to the A2H Strong raise 110 grand in like 10 days for people who were impacted. Matter of fact, I go to lunch today uh, to, uh, uh, to pick up, lunch, went to lunch this week to pick up some food. And I went in there and I was just thinking, the Lord just kind of said, hey, see if they need some help, all right? I'm not gonna tell you the restaurant, say if they need some help. So I said, hey, pastor of a church around here. And uh, if you have any workers that have been uh, either furloughed or hours cut back, uh, we would love to help them with some gift cards, some $100 gift cards to different different places. And the lady overheard me that was kind of back there. She's like, hey, hey, hold on one second. I got something for you. No, actually she said, actually she said, hey, are you the pastor of that Baptist church? And I was like, oh, which Baptist church? It depends. So she said, oh, you're, you're the one. So I have this for you. And she gave me, she gave me this card because apparently about a week ago, some of y'all have all, you had also helped her. You'd gone in there and helped her. And she basically uh, said this, Dear Biltmore Church, thank you so very much for the gift card. I do indeed feel loved and blessed beyond words with this truly unexpected gift. And here's what I, it helps more than any one person may know with gratitude. And then it lifts her, lifts her team and lifts her. In other words, just great, great job. Great, great job. It's just declaring and demonstrating. It's declaring and demonstrating. Thank you for doing that. And this is not new with us. This has been going on for 2,000 years. Julian, who was a Roman emperor, he hated the church, but even he admitted in disgust one time, he said, quote, these infernal Galileans, that was his name for the Christians, these infernal Galileans feed our poor in addition to their own. One church historian said this, quote, the most astounding thing to the outside observer was the extent, talking about the early church, was the extent to which poverty was overcome in the vicinity of the Jesus communities. Christians spent more money in the streets than the followers of other religions, talking about the pagan religions, spent in their temples. It's like, that is just great job. So again, are you, if you're not a partner with that, again, if you're here, man, plug in. If you're somewhere else, plug in, all right? When you're a partner, everything takes on a much bigger and better meeting. And uh, you're like, man, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want to plug in. Last time, last time I was at a church, 
I saw a bunch of hypocrisy, saw a bunch of backstabbing, saw a bunch of inconsistency. And uh, I would say that is true. And so let me just give you one other part in verse six that's pretty important for you to enjoy your church. And that is to see other people as, again, I don't know how to say it, but just in progress, in progress. I mean, look at, look at verse six. Verse six says, and I am sure of this, or I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm confident, I'm sure that what God began, and he's looking back. He's looking back at people like Liddy. He's looking back at the slave girl. He's looking back at the Joe Screwdriver. And he's like, you know, God began something awesome in your life but it's not complete yet. It will be complete one day, but right now you are still in progress. So here's a mistake we make, I think. Sometimes we read the Bible stories and think they are different than we are. We read them and we think Lydia got converted and she never wrestles with fear or she never wrestles with doubt or she never wrestles with materialism or entitlement. She never wrestles with that again. We think the slave girl, she th- we look at her and we're like, oh, well, she got converted and she never wrestled with bitterness. She never wrestled with anger. She never wrestled with the ability to forgive ever again. Uh, we, th- we look at the Philippian jailer and we, don't, we can't see his face, but we, we think all of a sudden he never struggled, you know, showing a tender side to his wife. He never struggled sharing his faith with the other jailers. Never would have struggled with that. And, and that's a mistake to make. This is just speculation, all right? Just speculation. So Bible's here. Bruce is over here. So this is not in the Bible. This is just speculation. But could it be, is there a chance still that Lydia, as the church in Philippi just grew, more than likely, most scholars say that the church in Philippi initially met in her home. I mean, she had a big home. They met in her home, but it grew really quickly. So it obviously had to get out of her home. But do you think, I mean, she's like the CEO type. Do you think she'd maybe ever struggle with maybe a little bit of entitlement? Like, hey, you know what? I funded this whole thing. It's been in my house. This is the program I started. Don't stop doing that. Pro- you ever think, you, I think she might have struggled. Do you ever think that? Do you ever think that, uh, do you ever think the slave girl, maybe, just maybe she had some issues with relationships later on? Do you ever think maybe the slave girl possibly had trouble trusting men as she grew up into being a, becoming a woman? Or again, going back to the jailer, you ever think again, he ever was demanding to his wife? Yeah, of course that stuff is true. So here's what I'm gonna say. Um, he's, Paul says, I'm sure what was began, God is perfecting. We have a saying around here, it's not perfection, okay? It's not perfection, it's progress. It's not perfection, it's progress, You get enough new believers with all different kinds of walks of life, and not just new believers, listen, old believers. You can be be a believer for 30 years. I've been a believer for 30 years, and you get to know me well enough, you're gonna go, man, you're a messed up person. Well, so are you. That's the whole point. When you look at this, I wasn't gonna say this, but here's the truth. Churches, Evangelical churches, sometimes we are really good at theology and really bad at relationships. Sometimes we are like spot on when it comes to, and it's really a a temptation for churches like ours that take the Bible really, 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 really seriously. It's like we really take this seriously. But sometimes 
if you don't believe me, all you gotta do is go on, go on uh, it almost feels like an oxymoron. It's like, look at Christ, Christian Twitter and look at the way Christians talk on Twitter to each other and see if you don't think, man, we sometimes can be amazingly accurate theologically and absolutely bankrupt relationally. So here's what we try to do here. What we try to do here is be intensely theological. The Christian faith is a theological faith, all right? Theology is what you believe about God, what you believe about Jesus, all right? There is a theology about the Christian faith. If you don't believe that in Philippians, I mean, wait till you get to chapter two and you talk about uh, the kenosis or how did the son of God empty himself and become a man? I mean, that will just like blow your mind there. It is intensely doctrinal. I mean, if you don't understand some basic doctrine that Jesus lived the life that you were supposed to live and then died the death in your place, all right? That when Jesus died on the cross, somehow that was for you. If you don't understand that, you know, when he says it is finished, that your debt was paid for and as you embrace him by faith, your sin is taken away. So there is definitely some theology you gotta have. But we wanna be intensely theological but very intentional relationally. And uh, in this book, you'll see everything from him encouraging them to love each other, pray for each other, humble themselves before each other, don't grumble against each other, provide for each other. What we say around, again, we are, <laughs> it's almost the point, we are far, we're not a perfect church because we have a bunch of messed up people, me being first in line. So what we try to say around here is we wanna have a culture of, we wanna be safe, but not soft. Safe means you are safe to come in injured, broken, and wounded. If you walk in with a limp, that's awesome, but not soft, all right? Because there's a tendency today in the church to almost celebrate our sinfulness. It's like, here I'm confessing it, but I'm not repenting from it. And that doesn't do anybody any good. What we want to do is we want to have brothers and sisters that will love us in a safe place and yet exhort us to take that to the cross. That's what we want, safe but not soft. So um, here's what I found out. Our tendency and my tendency is to do this as well. Um, because of our tendency, because of our sinfulness, our tendency as Christians is to do one of two things and then there's a balance we want to have. On one side, we tend to minimize relationships. Some of it's based on your personality. Uh, it's just to minimize it. And the way it goes today is, you know what? I don't need anybody else around me. It's just me and the Lord. It's just me and the Lord. And so what you do is you're kind of stubborn. And I'm talking to some Biltmore folks. I love you, I love you, I love you. But your stubbornness and your minimization of the need for relationship is shown when no matter how many times you're called, no matter how many times you're encouraged, no matter how many times you're shown in the Bible, you still remain isolated and you're like, you know what, I'm just not gonna get in a small group. I like kind of being a part of the big crowd where I can hide. And that's fine initially, but man, some of you have been doing that for like six, seven, eight years. And you wonder why, why don't I have joy? Why haven't I making an impact at work, all right? How come I'm still battling the same habits that I was battling five years ago? And I would say, you know what? The barometer of your Christian life is so much affected by your relational capacity and your relational friendships, it's not even funny. And so some of us minimize that. I'm kind of that way as well. By the way, on the other side, great job. Even during these last, what is it, seven or eight weeks, there has been 13 connect groups that have begun in the last seven weeks. 
I mean, there's Zoom. They're not going to be Zoom forever, all right? I've kind of got Zoom derangement syndrome right now, but it's not going to be forever, but it is for now. But 13 new small groups, 13 new connect groups, that's over 200 people. Awesome job, awesome job leaders. But what we do is we sometimes just minimize it. You know, it's just me and God, me and God. What you don't know is that God is telling you, you need your vertical is affected by your horizontal. That's another way to put it. Your vertical relationship with God is definitely affected by your horizontal relationship with other people. And your horizontal relationship with other people is definitely affected by your vertical relationship with God. So don't minimize it. On the other side, the other extreme is people idolize. It. What I mean by idolize is, idolize is you put people on a pedestal, especially people maybe that had a big impact. Maybe it's a pastor, all right? And maybe it's me, maybe it's one of your leaders and you put them up on a pedestal and then the closer you get to them, they disappoint you. And when they dis, I'm not talking about something egregious. I'm just talking about, you know, they get exasperated or frustrated or raise their voice or whatever it is. And you're just devastated about that. Listen, I don't know how to put this any clearer than this, but the only people who won't disappoint you are those that you don't really know. You get to know somebody and spend enough time with somebody, there is no way that at some point they will not disappoint you, including me. Because why? Because we're all sinners. We all have blind spots. That is why all enduring relationships, marriage, church, whatever, has got to have a truckload of forgiveness and a truckload of commitment, all right? Biblical friendship is basically, you know what? I'm not leaving at the drop of a hat. As soon as something goes wrong, I'm not taking the ball and going home, all right? I'm with you. I am committed to you. I, I hope you got some people like that. I had a Friday morning, I found out a good pastor friend of mine died unexpectedly, died tragically. And man, I tell you what, that was Friday morning. And I was actually thrown for, still am processing. And um, what helped was before the next day ended, I cannot tell you how many texts I got a lot of them from people like you, a lot of them from people in my discipleship group, some from my connect group. And what were they doing? They were like, hey, praying for you, praying for you. And they're like, please don't isolate yourself. If I can ever help, what they were trying to say is, hey, please let us help if you ever need help. You have anybody like that? You have anybody like that? That comes from, I mean, that's just part of the church. That's what the church is supposed to do. So here's what he says. If you don't minimize it, you don't want to idolize it. And by the way, when I say idolize, the reason I say people let you is, again, everybody, everybody has blind spots. And so to my shame, what I used to say, and we've said it, and we say it jokingly, is when one of y'all, uh, y'all meaning kind of pastor's language for church people who are like super, what's the word? Challenging. And that challenge might be repeated emails or, you know, going down the rabbit hole doctrinally or stubborn or whatever is we say, uh, the code word is EGR, just EGR, EGR, EGR. And what EGR is, it's kind of a little bit of a, it's just, EGR just stands for extra grace required. Extra grace required. It's like, ah, all right, EGR. And in one sense, it's good that you're like, hey, extra grace. I got to give extra grace. Some people are harder to love than other ones. But after about the thousandth time I used that in ministry, 
couple years ago, God said, hey, hey, Bruce, just, just so you know, you're EGR too, all right? You're EGR to me. It takes extra grace in your life to be lovable as well. And so when you look at people, don't minimize the need for people. Don't idolize people, just prioritize it. Verse 27 says, standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So let me close with this, two, two quick stories. Uh, you know, the Bible has a lot of different pictures, word pictures of what the church is supposed to be like. It's got the bride of Christ, which is kind of like uh, the intimacy. It's got uh, the body of Christ. The body of Christ is body of Christ is like the function, you know, hey, you know, you've got a function, you've got a role, I've got a role, and that's great. But the one that is used here, he uses it here in a few verses when he says brothers, is the idea of family. And that's the one actually I like the best. It's family, right? Because family says so much. Family says, shows that how we come into the kingdom, we're born again into the kingdom, we're adopted into God's family. Uh, but what it also is when you talk about a family is that it's kind of what the Bible says over the place is that we need spiritual fathers, we need spiritual mothers who are pouring into us. We got brothers and sisters who challenge us and love us and exhort us and text us and rejoice with us. We've got older siblings who are supposed to help the younger siblings. When babies come into the family, you do whatever you need to do to make sure the house is safe because the babies don't know what's not safe. All that stuff is family. And even, even to the extent I know uh, sometimes I'll go and, and visit campuses. If I'm not preaching, I'll go to one of, one of our other campuses and just kind of sit in the background and just watch. And, and I don't know everybody, but you know what's the coolest thing about being uh, in that? And by the way, if you're like, well, yeah, it's the big church. Nobody knows anybody. Hey, bro, just let me listen. Once you get over like 100, 150 people, right, you don't really know people, just so you know that. I mean, you don't really know... You don't have a hundred close friends, all right? You don't even have a hundred biblical friends. I mean, talking about that friend that can call you up at two in the morning and say, hey, I need some help. I'm on a business trip and I'm about to flush my life, all right? So it's not whether it's a church of a hundred or whether it's a church of 10,000, all right? We need that relationship. But the idea of family, even if you can't quantify it, it's, if you've ever been to a big family reunion, if you go to a big, big, big family reunion, you get that feeling, and I kind of jotted it down. It's like, you don't know everybody, but you know somehow you're part of everybody who is there. That's what church is like. I might not know everybody, but because of the, the koinonia, because of the fellowship, because of the commonality, it's like, man, I got a part of every single person here. All right, so here's, here's how I close with this. Um, I mean, I, I'm like a lot of you have been watching Last Chance, Last Chance, Last Chance, or Last Dance, excuse me, Last Dance. Michael Jordan deal, the last dance was the moniker that Phil Jackson gave the team for their last NBA championship, all right? They knew it was gonna be blown up after that. So it's called the last dance. I'm not telling you to watch it with Junior because there's some strong language in it, but anyway, I'm watching it. My kids are grown, so I'm watching it. So basically, again, this is the Chicago Bulls, their last championship. And what I thought about that is this. I thought throughout the whole thing, we're like on number, I think number uh Nine and 10 are on tonight. So there's been eight episodes. But what you see is there's all these things like these trials and even arguments, conflict, difficulties, uh, discipline, blood, sweat, tears, 
victories, defeats. There's all this kind of stuff. And one of the things they say after every single championship, after number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, and I'm sure they'll say it after number six, is they all say, listen, it's worth it, man. It was worth it. All right. When the champagne is popping and they're high-fiving and they're just hugging that trophy, they're like, this is so worth it. Now, that's an awesome deal. But do you not think, do you not think when we actually plug into God's bride, into God's body, into God's family, go through the thick and thin, the difficulties, the victories, the defeats, apply ourselves, go ahead and say, you know what? I'm gonna work through this with you, even through the conflict, through the joys, through the sorrows. Man, you can multiply that times like a hundred. I guarantee you, you'll say, man, that was worth it. That was worth it. All right, so here's the deal. Make sure, make sure you wanna enjoy your church. Make sure you see yourself as a partner. It's like, you know, I'm part of this thing, all right? It's not a hobby, I'm part of this thing. And then show grace to other people because they are in progress just like you. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for, thanks for church. Thanks for all the churches all over. Everywhere from here in the US to China to Africa to all over the world. You said, you know what? You will build your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Guys, thanks for the local churches. Thanks for the local churches here in WNC. God, I pray for every one of those churches that's preaching the gospel. God bless them. Help them to flourish. God, we at Biltmore Church want to thank you for these years. You've done some things that none of us really would have dreamed could happen. I certainly couldn't have dreamed it could happen. Thanks for allowing us to be a part of it, watch it, see it, and be some type of participant in it. God, our prayer is that for the remainder of this crazy season we're in right now and then for the years ahead, we would keep focused on, you know what, man, it's, we wanna be a part of a movement of God where you use the people of God for the glory of God and the good of their communities. And pray you do that with our church. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.